Hey folks, this is Michael, and welcome to Tatter. Today is Friday, March 20th, 2020, and as you probably know, there is a global COVID-19 pandemic. For the good of public health, and along with many other people, I have, as a consequence, been spending most of my time inside my home, which is where I am right now. And if you listen closely, you will notice some effects of that fact on the audio quality in a few portions of this episode. I was able to do the interview itself from the same studio that I typically use, but all the voiceover work I'm doing right here at my desk in my home. So it'll sound a bit like this. But I'm still proud of the episode, and as you'll hear, it's actually timely, so give it a listen. But first, as always, I want to say that unless anyone on Tatter says they are speaking on behalf of any particular organization or group, you should assume that each person speaks for themselves and themselves alone. And as always, I also want to say thanks, both to those who support Tatter through Patreon, but also more generally, to each of you who listens. It means a lot to me. With that said, let's get started. Here's Tatter. What do you know about Section 4 of the 25th Amendment? It provides that if the majority of his cabinet feels he's unfit to fulfill his duties, that the president could be removed from office. That dialogue featured Mike Novick and Lynn Kresge two characters from the TV drama 24, as they discussed Section 4 of the 25th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. The 25th Amendment, and in particular Section 4, sometimes comes up a lot in the context of concerns about Donald Trump's fitness for the office of president. And when people talk about it, and I've certainly talked about it this way myself, we often talk about it just the way that Novick and Kresge did, as if it's an amendment that empowers a majority of the president's cabinet to remove him from office because he is unfit to do his duties. But can they remove him from office? And can they do it because he's unfit? My guest today thinks not. And I believe him. I think he's right, and as a consequence, I think that those of us itching for the 25th Amendment to be invoked against Trump would do well to remember this advice from Omar of the HBO show The Wire. You come at the king, you best not miss. I recently, like just yesterday, had a chance to talk to Brian Colt, who is professor of law and the Harold Norris faculty scholar at Michigan State University. The courses he's taught include administrative law, the Bill of Rights, Torts 1 and Torts 2, and Constitutional Law 1. And he's literally written the book, or at least a recent book, on Section 4 of the 25th Amendment. I now share our conversation in this episode, which is titled, Wrong Tool for the Job. I was an undergraduate majoring in history. And, um, people, and that, was, that was at the University of Michigan? Yes. And, um, and people would say, well, what are you planning on doing with that? And I I, I know there aren't, you know, you can't say, oh, I'll go work for one of those big history firms in New York. Um, so uh, law school seemed to me to be a good extension of what I was already doing, which was learning about why 
things were the way they were. And uh, I had, for a long time, had in the back of my mind that I might like to practice law. But really, at the outset, I was mostly interested in studying law. And um, then when I was in law school, I gave practice a try. I, I liked it okay. But I think uh, the, the, the biggest problem I had with practice was um, I was working on these really interesting cases. And the parts that I was working on uh, was not the interesting part. Yeah. So there were there would always be these these interesting issues that I I wanted to pursue further, and that's not what the client was paying us for. So so I couldn't. And the appeal to me on the research side of uh, being a, a law professor was that I could just pursue whatever I thought was worth pursuing. Um, and I also thought I'd enjoy the teaching too. So now, now what, what's a specific example, if you can recall, of one of those aspects of a case that you found interesting, but you couldn't focus on because that's not what the client was paying you for. Oh, I, I can't remember any particular ones. Uh, there were there were hundreds of them. I, I would usually be researching a, a very narrow issue, but I, I do have one recollection from uh, actually a job I had while I was a law student, and um, there was a there was a case. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Eight Mile Road in Detroit. Detroit, yeah. It uh, separates th- the, thanks to the uh, Eminem film, that's that was my introduction. Exactly. So it separates the uh, the city from the suburbs. Um, it, it there's there's a, a lot of other big changes that happen when you cross Eight Mile. So I was working on a case where someone um, from south of Eight Mile, from Detroit, was pulled over on Eight Mile by some uh, police north of eight mile from the suburbs and um, she fled and went back home and there was a, there was a scuffle at her, at her house. Her brother got into it with the police and they charged him in the suburbs, uh, even though everything that he had done, everything happened in Detroit. And there was, it turns out there's a statute in Michigan that says if you commit a crime within a mile of the county line, um, you can be tried in either county. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, that doesn't seem constitutional. Um, and but there was a statute, and the lawyer had uh, other clients to tend to, and couldn't take this all the way up to the Supreme Court. And so that just sort of stuck in the back of my mind. And then about um, six or seven years later, I was a law professor. I said, well, I think I'm going to write an article about that. Yeah. And and uh, and I did. Now, one other thing that I know about you is that you clerked for Judge Danny Boggs of the Sixth Circuit. Um, I'm I'm not familiar with the circuits. Uh, Which part of the country is the Sixth Circuit? So the Sixth Circuit includes uh, going from north to south, Michigan, Ohio, Kentucky, and Tennessee. Oh, so as an Ohio State grad, I should know that. I was in the Sixth Circuit for six years. Uh, But um, one of the things that I found really interesting when I was reading about Pogs is that he administers a general knowledge quiz to uh, applicants for clerkships. And I'm not going to ask you how you did, but can you briefly tell me a little bit about what that was like? Well, I, I, of course, this is back in the 1900s, so this was all done by mail. Uh, <laughs> but I, I had applied to clerk firm, and uh, he sent the quiz. Uh, he called it a questionnaire. And you need to fill it out without doing research or consulting with anyone. And I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. Here's this uh, very 
boring process of applying for clerkships where everyone just wants your transcript and a writing sample. And here's someone who's digging deeper. And, and uh, what it said on the questionnaire itself was that it was to get an idea of our range of interests and experiences. I also had a sense that it would be better for me if I did well. Yeah. Um, but I, I did the best that I could. I had no idea what a good score was. And I sent it in. And uh, it was questions like literature and history and uh, math and science and current events and poetry and just, just very wide ranging. And I thought it was a lot of fun. Uh, a classmate of mine thought that it was ridiculously. He said, what does this have to do with anything? So it also operated as a sort of self-selection uh, mechanism because if you don't like the idea of taking the quiz, you probably wouldn't enjoy working for Judge Boggs as much. So uh, he really does use it as a way of seeing what your range of interests and experiences outside the law are. And also it allows him to choose clerks that uh, complement each other. So I was sort of like a math, history, geography guy, uh, but I was very weak on literature and poetry and that sort of stuff. So, uh, you know, we want to make sure he, he didn't have a bunch of geography people and no, uh, no literature people. You have a story that uh, ends, I would say, on a happy financial note, but uh, unhappily uh, with respect to Oprah Winfrey. Can you tell us that story? Oh, yeah. So um, back in 2000, I was on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire when it was, it was back when it was on prime time. It was on several nights a week. It was a big deal. And, you know, I, if someone's handing out free money, I'll get in line. So, uh, so I tried out for the show and I got onto the show and uh, made it into the hot seat uh, with Regis. And um, given the nature of Judge Boggs' selection process, it's not surprising, but uh, three of us former clerks of his uh, were on the show during, during that um, first season or two. And uh, two of us were able to use him as our phone a friend. So he helped me along. I got up to uh, the $32,000 level with his help and then got the $64,000 question. The $125,000 question was where Oprah Winfrey got her first job on television. And um, I used my 50-50, got it down to either Nashville or Atlanta. And I had done the math before and decided that if I had a 50-50 shot at the 125 question, I would, I would just flip the coin, take, take the chance. And uh, after that, I would have walked away with the money. But I, I took the chance and I got it wrong. So I still won $32,000. But uh, for, for the listeners out there who know that Oprah Winfrey got her start in Nashville, and not Atlanta, um, they they would have um, they they would have done better <laughs> had they gotten that far. Yes. Well, still, congratulations on the thirty-two grand, and um, uh, thanks again for joining me. I'm, I'm really excited to talk about your book that, uh, unless I'm mistaken, just came out in October of last year. Yes. And the book is titled "Unable: The Law." Politics and Limits of Section 4 of the 25th Amendment uh, to the U.S. Constitution, of course. And if you'd asked me, really prior to beginning this podcast, if someone could write a book that I would want to go read about not an amendment to the Constitution, but a section of an amendment, I would have rolled my eyes. But I, having just discovered that your book exists yesterday, am eager to read it. Uh, but for listeners uh, who, like myself, have not read it, I want to have a chance to talk to you about it right now. And so let's just start with some general background on the 25th Amendment 
which has, as many listeners know, come up from time to time with respect to uh, commentators' uh, thoughts on our current U.S. president. But uh, according to my notes, the 25th Amendment was adopted in 1967 after having been submitted to the states about two years, two years earlier, and it deals with presidential succession. Uh, can you give a brief sense of what motivated Congress to propose this? Yes. So this is one of the few amendments that's sort of proactive. Uh, instead of responding to an ongoing problem, they were trying to prevent one. Uh, there there's long been a problem with Article 2 of the Constitution, which says that if the president is unable to uh, discharge the powers and duties of his office, then the vice president steps in. And it was unclear who decides. Uh, what's the process? Does the president get his job back if he recovers. All of these things were left up in the air. And um, there were incidents when President Garfield was shot and he lingered for months. Uh, We effectively didn't have a president for a long time because nobody was quite sure what to do. And they weren't quite sure, again, if Garfield would get his power back and be recovered because they they thought he might. Woodrow Wilson had his strokes, same thing. Uh, No one knew what to do and the country was paralyzed. So this had been kicked around for a while, but then um, it really went into high gear when Eisenhower was president, and he had some serious health problems. And uh, as a military guy, he understood you need to have a clear chain of command, and you can't have uh, you you can't have a a vacancy at the at the helm. Uh, And so he worked it out with Vice President Nixon, where he he would transfer power to Nixon if if he uh, needed to, and he would take it back when he was better, and if and if he couldn't, uh, if he was so incapacitated that he couldn't even transfer the power to Nixon, Nixon could step in with uh, consulting with the cabinet and, and take power. And this was an informal arrangement, but it, it was pretty clear that they needed to write something like this into the Constitution to, to formalize it. Then uh, Kennedy was killed, and there was a lot of interest right then. And uh, this really sort of supercharged the effort to get this into the Constitution because people said, well, what would have happened if Kennedy had been shot but not killed? Um, What's the process here? And the 25th Amendment solved some other problems, um, including filling vice presidential vacancies. Um, So uh, but but the presidential disability part, which covers sections three and four of the amendment, was really the uh, was really the core of it. And so can you walk us through Section 4 specifically? Like what kinds of processes does it uh, put in place? So you you sort of have to read Sections 3 and 4 together. Section 3 says if the president declares that he's unable uh, to discharge the powers and duties of his office, he sends a letter to the uh, Speaker of the House, the president pro tem of the Senate, and the vice president becomes acting president. And then when the president sends another letter saying that he's better, then um, he takes power back. And we've seen that get used before. President Reagan did it when he had some surgery done. Um, George W. Bush did it twice when he was having colonoscopies. Um, Section four is for that situation where the president cannot or will not, for some reason, declare that he's unable, but he is unable. And uh, when that happens, the, the process, the decision makers designated in section four are the vice president, and a majority of the cabinet or some other body that Congress might uh, designate by law, but they've never done that. So either, um, either of those, but they've left it with the cabinet. So the vice president and a majority of the cabinet. 
execute a, a letter. They send it to the speaker and the president pro tem saying that the president is unable. Upon them sending it, the vice president becomes acting president. The president is still president. He's not thrown out of office, but he uh, no longer has any of his powers. Then, uh, either right then or or uh, or later, uh, whenever the president thinks that he is recovered, that he's able, he sends a letter to the speaker and the president pro tem saying that. Now, it's not like Eisenhower said where he just takes it back on his own say-so. They said, this is serious. If, if, if they've taken power away from him, if he says he's better, then that starts a process. And the vice president and the cabinet have four days in which they can redeclare that he's unable. If they don't, um, then the president at the end of the four days, or maybe sooner if they, if they all agree that they're not going to contest it, the president takes power back. But he doesn't take it back immediately. They have to sign off on it, basically. If they don't sign off on it, um, then it goes to Congress. And there's some time limits in there. They have 21 days to vote. And uh, you need two-thirds in the House and two-thirds in the Senate to agree that the president is unable um, for the vice president to stay as acting president. If either the House or the Senate falls short of that two-thirds, or if they go more than 21 days without making a decision, then the president takes his powers back. So it's a, it's a, it's a pretty, steep, um, pretty steep burden to meet. And that's on purpose because they want it to be quick. If the president's in a coma or something, they want it to be quick, right? No question right. about that. Let's have power transfer immediately. But if the president is well enough that he can contest the action, then it's really set up to protect the president, to make it hard to take power from him, to make it only in extreme cases uh, that in a case where he's objecting that he would lose his powers. And then after all that happens, he can continue coming back and saying, okay, well now I'm better. And right. Kick off the whole process again. So one of the things that motivated me, uh, really the primary thing that motivated me to reach out was my interest in the applicability of the 25th uh, amendment section four in the context of the current COVID-19 crisis and with it criticisms of Trump's fitness for office. Uh, so going back to uh, early March around March 9th, uh, March 9th, I think Jennifer senior wrote at the New York times that Trump is unfit to lead at a time of crisis. Uh, in her words, speaking of uh, a news conference that Trump uh, did at the CDC Quote, that news conference was to me the most frightening moment of the Trump presidency. His preening narcissism, his compulsive lying, his vindictiveness, his terror of germs, and his terrifying inability to grasp basic science, all of it eclipsed his primary responsibilities to us as Americans, which was to provide urgent care, namely in the form of leadership, end quote. And even though, to my knowledge, Senior has not uh, explicitly suggested a need to invoke uh, the uh, fourth section of the 25th Amendment. Uh, one of the things that I'm wondering is if people believe that Trump is unfit for office for the kinds of reasons that Senior referred to, narcissism, compulsive lying, vindictiveness, uh, germ uh, uh, phobia, and a terrifying inability to grasp basic science, do any of those, in your judgment, rise to the level of conditions uh, that 
the 25th Amendment was designed to be applicable to? Well, I think uh, not just uh, not just me, but the framers of the amendment would answer that decisively. No, um, they 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 designed it to not reach cases of a president who is really bad at his job, uh, unfit for office. Maybe uh, they raised the bar much higher than that. They wanted this to be for exceptional circumstances of not just being impaired but being incapacitated. So unpopularity, incompetence, impeachable conduct, uh, poor judgment, laziness, these things were not supposed to be enough. We don't really have a mechanism um, for dealing with that in our system. Um, We didn't before, and they made sure when they wrote the 25th Amendment that uh, we, we don't have one now. It really is not for a president who's unable to do his job in in the sense of competence, but really unable in the sense of uh, consciousness, really. Uh, Now, if someone had extremely advanced dementia or something like that, so they were were conscious, but they didn't know where they were, they didn't know the people around them were, well, obviously in a case like that, that's an easy call as well. But um, they... Uh, they designed it so that in that sort of situation, it almost certainly wouldn't work um, in in any but the most extreme cases of a president who's just completely unable in in a in a in a more liberal sense of being unable to do the job. Like I would be unable to do the job if I were president. I couldn't do it. Um, I would be unfit. But I. I I would be able to survive a section four action against me. So I was reading online an interview uh, at the Indianapolis star with uh, Jay Berman, who was an aide to Birch by Birch by, if I recall correctly, was a Senator who was one of the original proponents of the 25th amendment. Yes. He, he's, probably more responsible than anyone besides Eisenhower for this actually getting into the constitution. And so, uh, Berman at one point says, uh, is asked, um, why was this part of the amendment referring to the fourth section so difficult? And Berman says, we have always accepted the fact that no matter how you tried legislatively to address it, that it would never only always be a so-called quote medical issue in which you could check a box, yes or no, uh, that there would always be other factors that impinged on it, and that's what made it so hard. Uh, Unless I'm misreading Berman, in his suggestion that there'd be other factors uh, apart from medical issues, uh, I I see him reading some, um, some... vagueness into the language, some room for interpretation. Um, Am I wrong about that or am am I right? But it's just that there's not enough room for interpretation for the kinds of criticisms that senior marshaled actually be, uh, uh, be within its scope. Well, you're right that there's some play in the joints, um, but it's not like something like the due process clause or equal protection or the liberty interest part of the due process cause where we can, we can read a lot into that or, or privacy, right? These sort of expansive terms. They left the, the standard vague 
unable. Uh, not because they wanted us to be able to fill it with whatever we uh, thought at the moment it should be. Uh, they had some clear ideas about what it needed to be, but they wanted to leave it flexible enough that the real work of the amendment would be done not by picking the unable standard, but by designating who the decision makers are. And uh, the Constitution does this a lot, right? Like where, where it talks about presidents nominating judges. Uh, it doesn't say who is qualified to be a judge or what the president's supposed to look for, but it does say that the Senate has to sign off on it. And that's, that's our standard, right? Someone has to be good enough to get through the Senate. So when they're saying it's not strictly a medical question where you check off a box, they're saying that's why it's the vice president, that's why it's the cabinet, and not a doctor drawing some blood and running some labs and doing a, doing a neurological workup or a psych exam. It is a political decision as much as it is a medical one. And uh, I, I just want to quote another thing that Jay Berman said. Um, he had a New York Times piece uh, um, quoted him as saying, the defining characteristic of Section 4 was always the idea that there's a difference between unfit and unable. Hmm. And, and, and then he continued, in the deepest recesses of my heart and my mind, I know that Donald Trump is unfit to be president, but he is not unable. In fact, he's very able to carry out all of the terrible things he promised he would do. And so Berman understood um, that it wasn't, it wasn't about unfitness. It wasn't about defining unable broadly. It was about setting up a system where the people who make the call are the vice president and the cabinet, the president's own team. And then if he disagrees, two-thirds of the House and two-thirds of the Senate, which is more uh, than you need to impeach and remove, right? To impeach, you only need a simple majority in the House, not two-thirds. So anyone who's so unfit that uh, you would say, well, we, we need to read unable broadly, um, they long since would have been impeached and removed, right? It's hard to be unfit without doing anything unpe uh, impeachable. But if you don't have the votes to impeach and remove, then you're not going to have the votes to use Section 4 successfully either. So one of the chapter titles in your book is Correcting a Few Misconceptions. Am I right in assuming that one uh, such misconception is and I think I've been guilty of this myself, is conflating uh, unfitness with inability? Um, if, I, if I could just back up a little bit, that sure. chapter was like the reason I wrote the book. Sure. Um, usually I try and think of crazy things that have never happened that no one else has thought of. Um, but here we were in the Trump presidency, and I was reading all of these things on, mostly on Twitter, of people saying, and you can't, you can't just try and correct everyone on Twitter. I probably tried too much, but um, I, I decided, you know, there should be a book out there where people can understand, not trying to defend the president or attack the president. It's not about the president. It's about understanding how this amendment actually works so that when we talk about what we should do about whatever situation is going on, we're, we're dealing with reality. So, it starts with things as simple as people not knowing that it's the vice president and the cabinet. So they would say, Congress, do your job, invoke the 25th amendment. Or they'd say, we need to remove him from office using the 25th amendment. And it doesn't remove him from office, right? He can come back and he can keep trying. Um, but 
There is uh, misconception number three. Um, Section four is for unfit presidents, lazy, incompetent, irresponsible, screwy, dishonest, in violation of constitutional norms, etc. And that's a misconception. Um, That's actually the part where I quoted uh, Jay Berman in in the book. And then um, a couple of other ones that you see on the other side, too. Um, Some people say, oh, when the president declares that he's able, then he takes power back immediately. And and he doesn't. And if he thinks that he does, then that would be a big problem because we'd have two people thinking they're president and they'd be firing everyone and that, that, that would be bad. And then also people saying Section 4 would be a coup d'etat. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that's not uh, totally unfair, especially if you look at how Hollywood is treated this. Sometimes Section 4 is used for a coup d'etat. Just because something's in the Constitution doesn't mean that it's being used properly. Um, but if you really did have the vice president and the cabinet and two thirds of the house and two thirds of the Senate, in other words, the, the basic power structure of the United States federal government, everyone except the president agreeing, uh, and using a constitutional clause to do it. Well, that's, that's not a coup d'etat. That's, uh, that's the operation of the rules, the way they're supposed to, to operate. If they did something tricky and underhanded and abused Section 4, okay, maybe that would be a coup d'etat. But just using it in general would would not. A lot of people online, and I've been trying to trace it back to the source, like someone on some cable news show said this, and so now it's out there and people believe it um, like it's, Uh, an established fact, and it's not. But someone at some point said they can't even use Section 4 of the 25th Amendment against Trump because they don't have any real members of the cabinet. Everyone in the cabinet is acting, or most of the cabinet is acting, and he did this on purpose so that they couldn't use the 25th Amendment. Is is this the idea that the acting cabinet members can't be a part of the numerator? They can't vote to... uh, that the president is unable, but their offices are still part of the denominator, so it could actually be mathematically impossible to get a majority? Well, there there are two things. One is people think that, and, and that's just not true, right? If they're either in the numerator and the denominator, or they're not in either one. And okay. so either way, um, then there's the notion, oh, well, if, if there's no one in the cabinet, if they can't vote, if the denominator is zero, well, we all know what happens when you divide by zero. So maybe that's a thing. But But the premise of that is flawed because of the 15 positions, 14 of them are Senate confirmed right now. There's right. one acting secretary. There's never been, since the cabinet was originally staffed, there's never been more than three at a time. So even if they were taken out of the numerator and not the denominator, we wouldn't have a problem. But they're probably not even taken out of the numerator. Now, the other, the other thing that people worry about with this, and there's been some good writing on this, it's that... Um, if it's unclear whether they count or not, you might have a situation where if they do count, you have a majority. And if they don't count, you don't have a majority or, or vice versa, but, but an ambiguous result. And then maybe the plan is keep a couple acting secretaries in there so that you'll have this potential confusion, which makes it harder to use. It gives them an argument in court. Um, but that doesn't really work either because uh, as the design of the amendment is such that if the president's in a coma, they're going to be unanimous. And it doesn't matter if you count the actings or not. 
And if he's not in a coma and he's going to be fighting back and you need two thirds in the House and two thirds in the Senate, you're not going to want to go forward unless you're unanimous or close to unanimous. So if it was going to, if the vote was going to turn on whether the acting's counted or not, they probably wouldn't be going forward in that situation anyway, because they'd want to win in Congress, right? If you come at the king, you, you better not miss. So, um, so as a functional, as a practical matter, there's really not a story here where it matters uh, whether acting secretaries can vote or not, unless it's something like the president fires everybody or something like that. Uh, which is, by the way, the, the main reason why we can be pretty sure that acting secretaries can vote, because otherwise the president could fire everybody and, and head off Section 4. But um, it's just so pervasive out there that people have this idea that everyone in the cabinet's acting. They're not, and that acting secretaries can't vote. They Well, maybe they can't, but it's not an issue. So the idea that the prevalence of acting secretaries somehow renders Trump procedurally immune to invocation of the 25th uh, Amendment Section 4 doesn't hold water, but also it sounds as if those who would want to use this uh, would, would see this as, a, as an appropriate uh, weapon to use uh, to get him out of office probably don't have a leg to stand on either. Right. Um, the, the, re- the reason that the cabinet hasn't used it isn't that there's an acting secretary in the ranks. It's that he's conscious and walking around and tweeting and would contest it. So um, that was my main aim in writing the book was to tell people, look, this isn't what it's for. And if you really want to get him out of office, try something that works. Um, they tried impeachment. That didn't work. We've got an election coming up. But just because it's one of the few things in the Constitution that allows you to come at the president doesn't mean that it's worth using if it's not going to work. So one other chapter's title is Improving Section 4, which Again, I haven't had a chance to read the book yet, but I assume that in that chapter you discuss some possible uh, improvements. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so uh, one of them is that situation I mentioned where um, some people think, and and it comes up with disturbing to me frequency, uh, people think the president takes power back immediately. And uh, so one improvement would be making making it clear that that's not the case. So we don't have to risk that kind of disaster. Um, some other things. So, that, so just to, just to clarify, so that's not um, going to require an additional amendment to amend this. That's just a matter of clarifying the public's understanding of the existing text. Yes. So I tried to concentrate on realistic things that we could do to improve what we've already got because yeah. I don't have a magic wand to to wave to uh, to amend the Constitution, and so short of something that I think could get through two thirds of the House, two thirds of the Senate, three quarters of the states, uh, I, I didn't want to suggest anything like that. But uh, there are a lot of areas where these misconceptions can get in the way, and there are things that we can do to clear them up. So another one is, uh, and I see this a lot still on Twitter, is people are unclear who's in the cabinet. When we say the cabinet, what does that mean? Because there, there are cabinet secretaries and then there are cabinet, cabinet level people and then there are acting secretaries and what, what all is going on there. And the amendment is, is, if you look at the legislative history and you look at the language that they use, it's very clear what they mean, um, who the cabinet is. It's the 15 people in the cabinet, not the cabinet level people. 
it's unclear whether acting secretaries can vote or not, but that that shouldn't be a problem because uh, they, they probably can vote. But you, if they can't, then they're just not in the denominator. You just need a majority of who's left. But that's all well and good for me to be saying in a book. But in the middle of an actual attempt to use it, it would be really nice if everyone was on the same page from the get-go so that there wouldn't be any confusion at all. And we would know it's these 15 people, period. And um, presidents have these memos and they, they have these contingency plans and they could do a better job than, than they do. And, and the other problem is TV. I mentioned Hollywood. It's an irresistible source, right? Section four as a theme for, for drama. I mean, who, who can beat that? So pretty much every TV show that has a president in it has had an episode or episodes involving section four. And, they, and I have a whole section in the book about this. They pretty much all get it wrong. And the, and the problem is because we've never used section four in real life, the only understanding that people really have of what section four looks like is based on TV. So these, these dramatic portrayals that get it wrong misinform people and they make people think, oh, it would work in this situation and it wouldn't. Or they think, oh, the chief of staff gets a vote and he, and he doesn't. And um, so uh, it, it would be particularly helpful to have presidents, have their uh, legal counsel straighten this out, publicize it, um, have everyone on the same page instead of these Hollywood misconceptions driving events. So speaking of that, can you imagine or have you seen an instance of fiction that actually gets Section 4 right, but still in a manner that, in your judgment, is dramatic enough to, or perhaps comedic enough, to capture and hold uh, an audience's attention? Certainly. That was what drove me crazy when I wrote that chapter of the book, and I had to read all the books and watch all the movies and watch all the TV shows. There, there were some that got it right. Um, basically, none of the TV shows got it right unless they kept it very simple. Um, but there were some, there were some good books. Uh, William Sapphire wrote a book. I don't know if anyone read it, uh, but uh, he wrote it back in the 70s called Full Disclosure. And it was excellent. So if anyone's looking for a book that uh, deals with the 25th Amendment Section 4, really well in an interesting, dramatic way. I'd recommend that. Uh, Mario Puzo wrote The Fourth K in 1990. It was, it was as far as the 25th Amendment is concerned, just ridiculous and terrible. Um, in the TV portrayals, they all get it wrong. And what drove me crazy was they could have gotten it right without sacrificing any of the drama. Um, and I, so, so I just had to conclude that they just, they just didn't care about getting it right or they didn't know to get it right. Um, but there is plenty of drama there. And, um, there, there was a, I guess, scandal, um, back in 2012, they did a, a pretty good job. Uh, it was, you know, a little, a little soap opera E what, what they did with it, but the, the basics of it were, uh, sort of interesting and dramatic, uh, you know, saying the president's better and he's not, and and uh, what would that look like? Um, but most of them, they just uh, they they just bring up the drama. So I, I guess best example would be um, on Homeland. They use it against the president who's not unable, and she argues like this is not what it's for. She, I, I quote her in the book. It's like what I was saying all along in the book. 
Um, she said, this isn't what it's for. Uh, doesn't anyone care what the Constitution says? And, um, and she's right, but they don't resolve it in a way that shows that she was right. Um, the, the only reason she ends up winning is because it turns out that it's uh, Russian conspirators who are behind the people who are against her. And no one says, and by the way, we shouldn't have done that with the 25th Amendment. So um, that, wouldn't have, that wouldn't have been too bad if, um, if they had made it clear that she was right instead of just sort of having her give this speech and no one really knows. But um, I've I got to say it was, it was compelling television, even if it uh, misinformed millions of people. Maybe I'm wrong to suggest this, but it seems to me that except for uh, nerds like you and me and our colleagues in academia, the potential drama arises from aspects of the situation external to the uh, deliberations envisioned under Section 4. That is, the drama could arise from uh, the infection that uh, renders the president unable to do uh, the job, but not from the machinations within the cabinet. Am I wrong about that? I, I think that it's not mutually exclusive, okay. um, and, and um, it's irresistible to have this, uh, this sort of set piece. The president, his staff, his family, the doctors, the vice president, the cabinet, Congress, scheming uh, heroes, unwitting dupes, tortured souls, as I put it in the, in the book. Um, I think the best example of that, for, for those old enough to remember it, is the movie Air Force One in, uh, back in the 90s with Harrison Ford. They do a really good job in that movie. That, that was, I, I would say, out of all the movies, probably the best one, of making a drama about, here's the president, he's on Air Force One, the terrorists have taken over the plane, and the cabinet wants to invoke Section 4, and the vice president doesn't want to do it. Is he really unable? He's Harrison Ford, right? He's fighting the terrorists off single-handedly. Um, uh, what, what happens if we take away his power, and then he's useless to them. Um, just the, that whole deliberation, Vice President Glenn Close uh, trying to decide what to do, still not sure if she made the right call or not, but, you know, he's Harrison Ford, so, you, you know, he's going to pull it out in the end. Um, that, I thought, was a, a great, great example of using the process itself as dramatic fodder without having to get things wrong. They they uh, they they got it right and they did a great job. That's it for Tatter. I want to thank Brian Colt for taking the time to talk with me. For more information on him or any of the topics we discussed, go to tatter.fireside.fm and find the page for this episode where you will see links to additional information. To provide feedback on this or any other episode of Tatter, you can, if you are a Twitter user, mention Tatter using the handle at Tatter underscore rags, or you can go to Apple Podcasts and post a rating and or a review. I'll be grateful either way. Speaking of gratitude, I'm extremely grateful for those of you whose support has carried Tatter along this far. I just realized this is the 50th episode. Looking forward to 50 more if I'm lucky. In any case, thanks for listening, wash your hands, and be well.